This is Gil Manser, welcoming you to a newsworthy What Are They Up To Now version of word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, as we reprise conversations with guests who are in the news. Late-breaking news stories includes the just-released movie starring Billy Crudup playing Stanford psychologist emeritus Philip Zimbardo, and new books and honors for word-by-word guests Adam Johnson, Steve Hawkinsmith, Amanda McTeague, Matthew Pearl, Joan Price, and Yi Yun Lee. We'll begin today's show with a timely look at what Stanford professor Philip Zimbardo told us about the social psychology experiment he ran in the summer of 1971. What transpired over a six-day period has been turned into Kyle Patrick Alvarez's movie, The Stanford Prison Experiment, which opened in theaters last weekend. Here is what Professor Zimbardo told World word-by-word listeners, about his infamous experiment. Uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment is, was a simple study done on August 14th to the 20th, 1971, in which the simple question was, what happens when you put good people in a bad place? The good people were students from all over the United States who had just finished summer school at Berkeley and Stanford. They answered an ad in the city newspaper, wanted students for study of prison life, $15 a day for two weeks. They came down, we interviewed 75, uh, we picked 24 who were the most normal and healthy. We gave them battery of psychological tests, clinical interviews. So we knew on day one, all of these were good apples. College students, smart, all over the country, normal on, on six different personality tests, uh, normal in their background. We flipped a coin, which is central to all research. So we randomly assign one to be guard, one to be prisoner, one to be guard, one to be prisoner. That means on day one, we had only good kids, and there was no reason why anybody should be a guard or prisoner except by fate. Okay? And then we made it realistic. We had city police. I, I persuaded the city police in Palo Alto to do mock arrests of the kids who were going to be prisoners. They, they didn't realize that. Brought them down to police station, did a whole booking, brought them down to our, our prison uh, set situation. They, they were put in, in their uniforms. The guards came down the day before. We gave them military uniforms so they would feel that they had the power and it was their prison. And then we simply observed. From then on, it's in, so I, cre- I was the stage director. Uh, we created the set. We had all the props. Uh, and, what we, and the research was an improvisation. What did the guards do? What did the prisoners do? The study was supposed to go for two weeks. I had ended in six days because it was out of control. Guards were systematically abusing the prisoners, sadistically, creatively. I limited physical abuse, which they started doing at the beginning, but then because the college students and creative, they started using all kinds of psychological abuse. So severe that in five days, we had to release five of these normal, healthy kids because they had emotional breakdowns. And on the sixth day, we had to end the study. It was out of control. They started doing sexual things like this, Lining prisoners up saying, you're female camels, bend over, you're male camels, get behind them, hump them. Having, having them simulate sodomy. College students to other college students in an experiment in a mock prison and Stanford University uh, are engaged in these sexually degrading activities. So we ended the study at the end of, at the end of uh, uh, on the sixth day. 
what made the study powerful is we had visitors' nights. We had mothers, fathers, boyfriends, girlfriends. We had prison chaplain, we had public defender. We had policemen come down, psychologists come down. We had a parole board headed by an ex-convict, Carl Prescott. Uh, we, we try to bring as much verisimilitude of much mundane reality into this mock, mock setting. We had a prison staff. I was superintendent. We had a warden. We had uh, graduate students playing roles of, of uh, counselors. And it became a prison run by psychologists, in the words of the prisoners, and not by the state. But the impact was the same. Uh, and the study really ended because one of the people who came down to observe uh, saw these gar- prisoners with the bags over their heads, chained legs, guards screaming at them, walking like zombies, the ones who didn't break down and were released, and turned to me and said, it's terrible what you're doing to those boys. Everybody else said, what a realistic simulation. It's very, very, you know, the priest is interviewing the kid. He breaks down crying. And the priest tells me, oh, it's a first offender reaction. Your study is very realistic. No, no, it's not realistic. Kids are crying. Kids are breaking down. And she was the only one who said, these are not students. These are not subjects. These are not prison. These are boys. And you are in charge. You are the system that's maintaining this. And that forced me to end the study uh, after six days. The female student who finally brought Zimbardo to his senses was his then-girlfriend and now-wife and UC Berkeley professor emeritus, Christina Maslach. The other thing of notice is that the experiment was branded by the American Psychological Association as being one of the most unethical ever conducted. The horrible results of the Stanford experiment are in almost every law enforcement textbook printed since the mid-1970s including those studied by the military commanders and guards at the notorious Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. You can read about Philip Zimbardo at his website, zimbardo.com. Pulitzer Prize winner Adam Johnson believes that as bad as the Stanford prison experiment may have been, quote, the cruelest psychological experiment ever cooked up is North Korea, unquote. I was very fortunate to be able to have a conversation with the Stanford professor of creative writing, about his astounding novel, The Orphan Master's Son, several months before Adam and his novel were awarded the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Here's what Adam shared with word-by-word listeners during his visit about his writing process and what he labeled the strangeness of the North. There's no end of absurdities, and actually one of my challenges in trying to find the human dimension of a place that's that's very difficult um, to um, ascertain those qualities was to get past the absurdities, to try to leave a lot of that out as tempting as it is for a writer to bring those real-life things in and to mitigate the darkness. I tried to keep the, the real-life research um, and the results it yielded as to the true perilous nature of the gulag system there, I had to tone it down a great deal because it just – while absurdity undercut the humanity of my characters, the malevolence of how people are treated there um, well, you weighed them down. Yeah, You mentioned, for example, that uh, there was this uh, propaganda that's you know, transmitted every single day and the fear still mm-hmm. that's, that the Americans are going to invade or the Japanese are going to invade that's at any right. second. That's right. And you have to keep listening. At least the parents of one of the characters mm-hmm. insist they listen to it because they want to be aware if there's right. a warning coming. 
You know, if you think about the from the North Korean perspective, for about a millennium, they've been a pawn of China, Mongolia, or Japan, a, a possession that's tr- been traded through wars that were fought on their territory. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't known self-determination or independence for long stretches at all. Then you think of the way they were occupied um, for the first part of the last century. Then World War II came. Um, then partition between the Soviets and the Americans, then the Korean War, then the rise of a totalitarian regime. It's it's a pretty dark century for for the people of that nation. But also from their perspective, they have had 60 years without a foreign invader um, ruling them. And, for the, and in their perspective, that's a pretty great success. And in the Korean War, the Americans bombed Korea mercilessly. We had a fleet of planes designed to fight two global theaters mm-hmm. on, a, on a planetary scale, and we unleashed it all on a, a very, relatively small place. We bombed Pyongyang uh, in the middle of the war um, to the degree that only three buildings were left standing. And the, those memories are seared and they are real. And the regime, of course, uses that fear and perpetuates it as if it's a, a, a current reality to keep control of the people. And they do that in so many subtle ways. For instance, we open in a an orphanage, mm-hmm. and every boy in the orphanage is named after a martyr. Mm-hmm. And the, each of the boys needs to know what their martyr did and be able to recite. That's right. Uh, you know, the, the way that person died defending mm-hmm. the homeland. Mm-hmm. This is actually, you know, a lot of the things that seem unbelievable about North Korea are pretty factually based. This is one element that, that I invented because, you know, in, in North Korea, everyone must do seven years of military service. Orphans, unfortunately, are a real problem in that society. There are a lot of people without anyone to care for them or advocate for them. The, in Korea as a whole, the idea of an orphanage is, is different. It's not really a place where you get adopted. It's more like a place where you're warehoused until you're an adult and and I did discover that the shame of having to put a, a child in an orphanage because you couldn't afford to care for him or her often led parents to keep the names of the children secret and so so that the family shame wasn't reflected back upon them so the children would go in without names and have to be renamed and I thought in North Korea this is something that they would use they use every opportunity to further the aim of the regime right and one of the things that happens to the boys that you describe in this mythical orphanage mm-hmm. is the adults coming and basically taking boys away for short periods or long periods of time mm-hmm. to do we do not know what. Right. It's a source of child labor, which right. is, you know, thought to be a, thought to be a good use of of you know that unfortunate outcome there. So, you know, the first few pages of the book kind of capture the '90s, the sense of. The Soviets cutting off aid in the early 90s, the death of Kim Il-sung and the shock to that country in 94, the floods that came in 95, due in a large degree through deforestation and the great famine that began you know, in 96 that probably killed 10 percent of the population, uh, which would be over 2 million. And you know, just to get those couple pages right, to get the city of Chongjin um, to get the industrial cannibalization going on, the fates of those people, was the product of, like I said, a couple years of research. Mm-hmm. Well, it it comes across very uh, strongly on the page. What's fascinating to me is that when the character Jong Du, mm-hmm. is that how you say it? Sure. 
Or you say it for me. I say Jundo. Do. Yeah. Okay. Do like play do. Oh, well, you know, it's we're try, kind of, you know, um, pronunciation in Korean is not my expertise. If I'd have known I was going to spend six years writing a book set in Korea, the first thing I would have done is learn Korean. But that was a, that was a mistake of mine, I think. So anyway, the next thing in Jundo's life is to be recruited as what would they refer to as a tunnel soldier. That's right. Which is another very, very interesting thing is these Mm -hmm. miles and endless miles and miles and miles and miles of tunnels Mm -hmm. under the entire country almost Mm -hmm. uh, where they uh, literally do military exercises in the dark. That's right. The North Koreans have prepared for the the staging of a possible invasion of the South uh, for decades. Uh, Six of these tunnels have been discovered so far. They're large tunnels, many kilometers long. They go deep underground into the sovereign territory of of the ROK of South Korea. And the tunnels are all designed to be 10,000 men an hour, which is really moving a lot of vehicles, men and materiel um, into another country. So they're they're huge, they're long, and they have special crews who who do the build these tunnels and maintain them and prepare to go to war through them. And the tunnels are not straight. So That's that if right. some as you explained, if someone shoots a rocket or a bullet, mm. it'll hit a wall instead of, you know, continuing on for a long period right. of time. Right. There's there's no line of sight. Right. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well that certainly sets up the character for his next assignment, uh, which is one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard, although I have read references to it in other sources about Mm -hmm. the kidnappings of Japanese, usually at night. That's right. Off of beaches or lonely spots of land. Mm -hmm. um, And very random at first, Mm -hmm. but then much more specific. They are sent for a a specific opera singer or a specific architect Mm -hmm. or a specific cook. Mm -hmm. This notion of the kidnappings um, is, is a bone of great uh, contention between you know, Japan and North Korea because the North is so hermetically sealed because they don't allow any cultural information about the outside world in, in that when they want agents to travel abroad and act normally, they have to kidnap citizens of those places and try to learn proper you know, native behavior. It's such a you know, counterintuitive thing, but th- but that's one of the side effects of being so closed off. In the 70s and 80s, um, uh, there were many such kidnappings. Uh, the North Koreans have admitted to 34, though some estimates are over, over 100 people just from Japan uh, were plucked from beaches, from piers, uh, from islands, from their fishing boats by North Koreans who wanted language teachers – they wanted cultural intelligence, people to train their agents, you know, to <clears throat> move in a native way. And so they could infiltrate into so Japan. So they could later infiltrate, walk amongst, gather information. Um, the North Koreans are very paranoid about uh, Japan, especially since there are so many people of Korean descent there that they think can be used against themselves. Mm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Um, why don't you read just this part of this uh, this chapter here? It's a couple paragraphs, but it's as the kidnappings are coming to an end. And he's been doing it for how many years now, would you say? Mm. Unknown. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. There were many kidnappings to come, years of them, in fact. 
There was the old woman they came upon in a tidal pool in Shino Island. Her pants were rolled up, and she peered into a camera mounted on three wooden legs. Her hair was gray and wild, and she went without protest in exchange for Dundo's portrait. There was the Japanese climatologist they discovered on an iceberg in the Tsuguro Strait. They plucked his scientific equipment and red kayak, too. There was a rice farmer, a jetty engineer, a woman who said she'd come down to the beach to drown herself. Then the kidnappings ended, as suddenly as they'd begun. Jundo was assigned to language school to spend a year learning English. He asked the control officer in Kyongsung if the new post was a reward for stopping a minister's son from defecting. The officer took Jundo's old military uniform, his liquor ration card, and a coupon book for prostitutes. When the officer saw the book was nearly full, he smiled. Sure, he said. I hope you caught how engaging Adam Johnson is to hear and read. Later on in The Orphan Master's Son, the hero is assigned to be the radio operator on what is supposed to be a simple fishing vessel. They're on a fishing vessel at this point. Right. They'd been in international waters for several days now. Their North Korean flag lowered so as not to invite trouble. First, they chased deep-running mackerel and then schools of jittery bonito that surfaced in brief patches of sun. Now they were after sharks. All night, the Junma had long lined for them at the edge of the trench, and at daybreak, Jundo could hear above him the grinding of the witch, the winch, and the slapping of the sharks as they cleared the water and struck the hull. From sunset to sunrise, Jundo monitored the usual transmissions— Fishing captains mostly, the ferry from Uichi to Vladivostok, even the nightly check-in of two American women rowing around the world. One rowed all night, the other all day, ruining the crew's theory that they'd made their way to the East Sea for the purpose of having girl sex. Hidden inside the Junma's rigging and booms was a strong array antenna, and above the helm was a directional antenna that could turn 360 degrees. The U.S., and Japan and South Korea all encrypted their military transmissions, which sounded only like squeals and bleats. But how much squeal and where and when seemed really important to Pyongyang. As long as he documented that, he could listen to whatever he liked. It was clear the crew didn't like having him aboard. He had an orphan's name, and all night he clacked away on his typewriter down there in the dark. It was as if having a person aboard whose job it was to perceive and record threats made the crew, young men from the port of Kinji, sniff the air for danger as well. And then there was the captain. He had reason to be wary, and each time Jun Do made him change course to track down an unusual sign, it was all he could do to contain his anger at the ill luck of having <clears throat> a listening officer posted to his fishing ship. Only when Jundo started relating to the crew the updates of the two American girls rowing around the world did they begin to warm to him. When Jundo had filled out his daily requisition of military soundings, he roamed the spectrum. The lepers sent out broadcasts, as did the blind, and the families of inmates imprisoned in Manila who broadcast news into the prisons. All day the families would line up to speak of report cards, baby teeth, and new job prospects. There was Dr. Rendezvous, a Brit who broadcast his erotic dreams every day, along with the coordinates of where his sailboat would be anchored next. 
There was a station in Okinawa that broadcast portraits of families that U.S. servicemen refused to claim. Once a day, the Chinese broadcast prisoner confessions, and it didn't matter that the confessions were forced, false, and in a language he didn't understand, Jundo could barely make it through them. And then there came that girl who rode in the dark. Each night she paused to relay her coordinates, how her body was performing, and the atmospheric conditions. Often she noted things, the outlines of birds migrating at night, a whale shark seining for crew for krill off her bow. She had, she said, a growing ability to dream while she rode. What it was about, what was it about English speakers that allowed them to talk into transmitters as if the sky were a diary? If Koreans spoke this way, maybe they'd make more sense to Jundo. Maybe he'd understand why some people accepted their fates while others didn't. He might know why people sometimes scoured all the orphanages looking for one particular child when any child would do, when there were perfectly good children everywhere. He'd know why all the fishermen on the Junma had their wives' portraits tattooed on their chests, while he was a man who wore headphones in the dark of a fishhold on a boat that was 27 days at sea a month. As Ben Shapiro wrote last week in the Wall Street Journal, quote, Adam Johnson had an ideal upbringing for a writer. His father was the night watchman at the Phoenix Zoo, and he would bring young Adam along on his evening rounds. As Adam says, My father showed me there was a zoo that average people saw, but at night, with all the keys in hand, he would lift the veil and show me the real zoo. Animals had certain behaviors in their exhibits, I learned, but at night, in their private enclosures, they displayed their true personalities. The zoo taught me there was always hidden, purer world, and this is the only part of life I'm interested in depicting in my work. Shapiro was writing for his review of Adam Johnson's short story collection, Fortune Smiles, which arrives in bookstores next week. Word-by-word fans should be pleased that I have invited Adam to join us at a convenient time in the next few months for a conversation about his new book and how life has changed since winning the Pulitzer. Steve Hawkinsmith writes really fun historical Western novels about the Amlingmeyer brothers, two cowboys who travel the West with copies of Sherlock Holmes' latest stories in their saddlebags. Starting in short stories and then in a series of novels that began with Holmes on the Range, the brothers make the assumption that Holmes is a living detective and utilize his particular combination of observation, clue collection, and brain power to solve the crimes they stumble upon. Steve has been on Word by Word on different occasions, and I think you will enjoy his lighthearted take on the awards banquet experience. Steve Hawkinsmith, now you were uh, up nominated for your Homes on the Range as the be- one of the finalists for Best Mystery Novelist for the Edgar Award, which is named after Edgar Allan Poe is given by the Mystery Writers of America. And you just came back from New York, where not with a plaque, but with lots of uh, stories to tell. I did. I did not come back with uh, the Edgar statuette that is given out. I did come back with an Edgar Allan Poe bobblehead (laughs) because there was one at every place setting at the banquet. So uh, as booby prizes go, I I thought that was was pretty cool. I was up for best first novel by an American author. um, And so I'll take this opportunity to thank the Mystery Writers of America for their protectionist trade policies. Um, if it had been open to, let's say, those you know those darn furners, I don't know if I would have made the cut. So keep it to Americans, and I slipped in there, and uh, alas, I did not win. 
Uh, but I did get to, get to meet all my fellow finalists who, curse them, were all really nice people who wrote really good books. So uh, I can't uh, hate them in good conscience. Um, one of them uh, came up to me uh, right before the ceremony and, and shook my hand. I hadn't met him yet. And he said, hi, I'm Alex Berenson. Uh, I understand we're the dark horses. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yes, uh, because your book is funny, and I wrote a thriller. And thrillers and funny books never win the Edgar. And about two hours later, he was standing up at the podium receiving his Edgar. Uh, <laughs> he was half right. Right. Now, when you talk about, uh, we'll keep with Steve for a bit here. Now, when we you talk about writing a funny book, was that your intent at the beginning? Because I know you've done some shorter stories using the same brothers as characters. And the, the one, Ted, in fact, this is a good time to tell us a little bit about the brothers. Oh, sure. Well, the, uh, the books uh, did begin with short stories, which you don't have to read to heartily enjoy the books. Uh, but they were published in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. Um, and it's about these, these stories and books are about a couple of brothers, cowboys in e- the 1890s, uh, Big Red and Old Red Amlingmeyer. And they run across in Harper's Weekly Magazine the tales of this great detective, a real person, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And uh, Old Red, uh, as you might guess, the elder of the two brothers, gets it in his head that, um, by golly, he could actually pull off this detectiving thing. He thinks he might have a talent for it. Uh, The only drawback for him really being that he can neither read nor write, which uh, I think everyone in the room would agree is a bit of a challenge for a detective. Uh, (laughs) But fortunately, his younger brother, Big Red, can read and write, and he's able to talk Big Red into helping him uh, deducify, as he calls it. And lo and behold, of course, people start, start dropping like flies all around them, fortunately. Uh, so they have mysteries to solve. And um, these, the second book just came out on the wrong track. And uh, the, I look at these books very much as classic old school mysteries. Uh, when I say classic, I'm not you know patting myself on the back, but I mean I'm sort of following the template of uh, the Agatha Christie style, uh, where you have uh, red herrings and clues, and it's all fair play, and the reader hopefully can try to put it together themselves. Hopefully they don't, but they can try. But there's a lot of humor in the books. Um, but I would not want to characterize them as comedies. I didn't. It's uh, something where hopefully they're funny, but they're not comedies. Uh, there's there's humor in them, but they're not wacky. Comic incidents. Yeah, or really it's the voice. Um, it's written, uh, Big Red is the narrator, and uh, he has a very particular way of expressing himself. This is a perfect time to hear from Big Red himself. Why, sure, I said. This here Harper's has got a story on that World's Columbian Exposition they're planning in Chicago. Going to be like ten state fairs and a hundred carnivals rolled up in one. And you'd never guess how much concrete they're shipping in to build the exhibit halls and such. This article just goes on and on about it. It should only take an hour or so to get through. Hats, boots, and curses came flying my way while Old Red suffered in stone-faced silence. Well, my goodness, if you fellers don't have strong opinions about literature, I said. This next story looks like it's about a stolen racehorse, so I don't suppose you'd want to hear about that. Now, here's an article about the Idaho Populist Party. How about if I, as I expected, there were cries of, Whoa there, and back up! There are two things cowboys can talk on all day long, horses and gambling. Combine them into one story and throw in the appeal of a crime to boot, and you'll have any puncher downright hypnotized. So naturally, the boys were anxious to hear that racehorse tale, which just happened to be Silver Blaze by Sherlock Holmes' pal John Watson. The story had much to grab the ears of my audience. 
There was that stolen thoroughbred, a death, a crooked bookmaker, and even gypsies. Yet while keeping the hornet's nesters, that's what the, uh, the fellows working on the ranch are known as, happily diverted, all this was but trimming as far as my brother was concerned. The meat of the matter was how Holmes found that missing horse. As I read certain passages, I slowed my pace and glanced at Old Red, certain that he'd be doing his best to commit these words to memory. The difficulty is to detach the framework of fact, of absolute undeniable fact, from the embellishments of theorists. I follow my own methods and tell as much or as little as I choose. That is the advantage of being unofficial. See the value of imagination. We imagined what might have happened, acted upon the supposition, and find ourselves justified. When I was finished, Gustav stretched out on his bunk looking like a man who'd stuffed himself full of duck and pudding on Christmas Day. The rest of the boys seemed pleased enough, though the story lacked the perils and bloodshed they considered essential to truly rousing tale-telling. Still, the next night I was able to talk them into hearing two more Holmes cases, the stockbroker's clerk and the glorious Scott. Though these tales struck me as skimpy on the instructive deductions my brother craved, Old Red had no complaints. In fact, he had little to say on anything at all, acting so distracted in the days that followed that the other hands began ragging him for his sleepwalking. Steve often utilizes a similar humorous anecdote approach in his very readable blog. Here's an excerpt from the blog post announcing his newest novel. Quote, My newest novel, the sequel to last year's tarot-themed mystery, The White Magic, Five and Dime, has a title that's a mere three words long, Fool Me Once. Yet still, I keep getting it wrong. In my hand, it will always be Fools Rush In. That's the title I was thinking of when the book was being planned, and thematically, I think it fits the story better. In the end, however, thematically meant bufkus, because there were already 863 books called Fools Rush In, so the name was switched to Fool Me Once, which has only been used 547 times. Sela Publishing. Fortunately, this rose by any other name still seems to smell as sweet, which is a convoluted way of saying name shame. People like the book. You can see more at stevehawkinsmith.com. Another writer who gives her characters a distinctive voice so that it jumps off the page is Amanda McTighe. Her novel, Going to Solace, was my selection for Best Book of 2012, and when you hear Amanda, you will immediately know why. Going to Solace is much more than just the title for your book. It's a singular place, a destination, and a state of being all rolled into one. So tell us about Solace. How lovely to have someone say that to me right off the top. Well, Solace in this book, uh, we are in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. We're in a fictional place. Mm -hmm. It's 1980. You know, I looked it up. I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah. If you did some cross-referencing to the map at the beginning of the book, you might find the mountains I used for that map. But otherwise, I used fictional town names. Nevertheless, it's a lot like the area where I grew up in, in North Carolina. And solace in this book is the one word name for a hospice. So we are going to solace in this book because we're taking care of – a host of characters are taking care of someone who is gravely ill. Mm -hmm. And they're very different people. We've got plain people. We've got fancy people. But their paths cross at solace. 
plain people and fancy people, and we don't mean those who are tattooed and have no. No, in, in mountain parlance, <laughs> that would be, you know, someone who doesn't come out of the mountains much. That would be your plain person. Right. And somebody fancy, somebody from outside those mountains. Right, somebody from a big city somewhere. Yes, exactly. Some other place. That's right. That's right. There aren't any big cities. <laughs> well, they've what heard What is tell. the largest town there? Where I'm from, I'm really near a fantastic city called Asheville. Oh, I know that. Way, yeah, way west. Got even uh, wonderful culture there. Oh, yeah. Asheville's—I cannot recommend it enough. It's—it's it's really something. I'm from down the road, mm-hmm. but uh, Asheville's where one goes for a little bit of culture. The conversation continued as we met different characters in the book, and then I asked this question: What has surprised you about the response to your book? And I'm really grateful for this. I, I'm coming to it as the readers are. I've been mm-hmm. kind of not close to it. Um, because you've been away from it for a I'm, while? I'm working on a second book, All so right. my head's in another book. Yeah. Um, but coming back, oh, my goodness. First of all, doesn't it just touch you when readers tell you their stories? That's when I know. You know, when somebody reads your work and then they start to tell you, ah, oh, that is so happy-making. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you asked what was surprising I get into the world of the characters, and I so many readers speak about how they feel comforted. It, it reaches into their lives. That is something that I'm very happy about, but I'd kind of forgotten. The other you, thing— no, Wait a minute. Let's go back to that. Mm-hmm. You had forgotten that you were writing. Who were you writing to then? Did you have someone in or some God, what a group great of question. people in mind? Or First just person. for yourself? Which is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I think I imagine, I think way underneath it, I imagine the folks that I grew up with in this North Carolina place. Ah, who are familiar with it. Yeah, that they would smile and say, yes, this is okay. That this, this is, yes, this is fine. It is neither too close mm-hmm. and it is certainly not inaccurate. Right. So it it depicts us but with the proper distance. Right. I think I think I probably was hoping that that's what I would hear from that reader. I think I've been afraid to think about readers who are all very very different from this book. I've wondered whether it could have a a reader who isn't from the region. Very very different. Oh, not from the region. Yeah. Well, having read it and not being from the region, that's not a problem. Ah, oh, you see I'm huh. So there's a little not surprised, but I'm, you know, I'm just I mean, very I, happy. I, I wrote, in fact, a comment on your Amazon page. And uh, one of the things I said is I read over 100 books just for this show. And um, not all of them are w- well-crafted. But this goes beyond being well-crafted. It is a very emotionally fulfilling book to read. <sighs> Gil, can I just lie down now and just cry sure. a little? <laughs> I don't have any Kleenex in here. I'd hand it to you. Oh, I – and I feel that way only because I still feel that way about these characters, that I've been able to make them clear to others in a way that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what we all do this for. It's just very happy-making. Right. You are listening to a newsworthy What Are They Up To Now version of word-by-word conversation with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, as we reprise conversations with guests who are in the news. 
As you have already heard, late-breaking news stories includes the just-released movie starring Billy Crudup playing Stanford psychologist Philip Zimbardo and new books and honors for Word by guests Adam Johnson and Steve Hawkinsmith. Stay tuned for updates about Word by Word guests Amanda McTighe, Matthew Pearl, Joan Price, and Yi Yun Lee. The last Dickens spins murderous intrigue from the question of whether Charles Dickens really left the mystery of Edwin Drood unfinished or a final section was destroyed because of what it contained. The seeds of the last Dickens were sprouted when Pearl was writing his novel about Edgar Allan Poe's mysterious death. You, this new one, The Last Dickens, is of course about Charles Dickens, and you be you begin the story, we'll talk about how you begin it, but anyway, in historical terms, Dickens comes to the United States for a literary tour, a book signing and lecture presentation. Exactly, Gil. And when he's yeah. here, if I recall, he visits Poe's widow. Uh, well, actually, Poe's... Um Poe's mother-in-law, mother-in-law, who right. was also Poe's aunt, because Poe married his cousin. That's another topic. That's another. Yeah. <laughs> That's another topic. But he he does. obviously we're going to have to pick up the Poe shadow and, and look and delve into that. Yeah, well, Poe Poe of course had a very uh, a very richly um, interesting and colorful life, um, and uh, as did Dickens, and and Dickens and Poe actually did meet on on not on that tour because of course Poe is has has died by the tour um, in 1867 when Dickens comes to the United States. But Dickens came uh, in 1842 to the United States. This was not for a book tour. It was just to sort of travel around. Mm -hmm. And Poe... he'd never go back. uh, Right. He he had a very negative experience and he he said, I'm never coming back to America. Um, And and Americans were also very upset with him for for various reasons because he ended up writing a, a travelogue, Dickens did. Um, called American Notes after that first trip and was not too kind about American culture. Um, in any case, he does meet Poe when he when he's in Philadelphia, and that that was actually what gave me the um, the motivation and the ideas to start planning this novel, The Last Dickens, while I was writing the Poe Shadow because I had I had stumbled onto that meeting. Um, by the way, they didn't like each other after the meeting mm. between Poe and Dickens. We're not exactly sure what transpired, although we know they discussed mystery writing. Right. So, of course, that grabbed my and, attention. And Poe is uh, credited with the first mystery, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Poe um, invents the the first literary detective um, named Dupont, a Murders French of character. Murders of the Rue Murders of the Rue Morgue is, originates the model of the detective story. And um, that plays a lot into, into the Poe shadow. And for... Um, for the last Dickens, I, I knew that um, one of the things I wanted to incorporate, which is what you brought up, is this this big book tour right. uh, when Dickens um, travels through the United States. And, and when he does come back in, in the 1860s, he does uh, visit Poe's mother-in-law, Maria Clem, uh, who was left destitute. Uh, well, po- even in Poe's lifetime, they were they were destitute because Poe never made much money at all. Uh, and was not a particularly um, successful author, although he was well known in, in certain circles. And Dickens d- gives her some money to help mm-hmm. her. And he was a very successful, the most successful exactly. author exactly. of his time. Study and contrast between Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens, um, two authors that we continue to read pretty uh, voraciously, but in their own days really had very, very divergent paths. Charles Dickens was, uh, you, you can only say, a, a celebrity, a megastar. Um, when he got to the United States, they had to sneak him from the steamship into a carriage, as is discussed in, and shown in The Last Dickens, 
um, because there were mobs of people waiting to get him, and and they still they still yeah, showed they're, up. They're they're tearing little bits of fur off his coat. As exactly, he goes by. exactly. And they're they're getting any souvenirs they can. A footprint left in A the muddy snow. Right, yes. right. We see that in in the last Dickens. Those are little details that I just loved to find and to include in the book because it gives you. Um, a window into the fact that it wasn't just that Charles Dickens was a writer of enormous popularity and importance, but also a persona, someone that um, people really, um, really couldn't wait to see in person, couldn't wait to touch, to to hear, and that cultivated that. Charles Dickens uh, was not one to shy away from that kind of adulation. The United States tour Dickens took had some interesting consequences. Here's Matthew Pearl reading about those troubles. Tom Brannigan is a porter that uh, is part of Dickens' entourage. And he's Irish, which is important. And he's Irish. um, And Dickens' entourage is quite large. And Tom, although he holds a lower position, becomes an important figure as he, in a way, becomes the protector, the bodyguard bodyguard, of Charles Dickens. So here we have Dolby um, being confronted on board the ship that they're boarding to go back to England by the tax collectors who are not letting them go without a fight. They mean to arrest Mr. Dickens and myself, Dolby said shakily to Tom. Tom, without hesitation, stepped in front of Dolby and addressed the taxmen. Take me instead and let them go. I will stay behind until this is sorted out. The rougher, sealskin-capped taxman pushed Tom hard in the chest sending him tumbling down. Tom stopped himself from cracking his skull open at the last moment by catching the railing. Pennock, the lead tax man, removed a pistol from his pocket. We'll deal with Dolby, and then with Mr. Dickens. After taking a brief breather from Dead Writers in The Technologist, a 2012 novel about 19th century scientists, Pearl leans on the classic bookshelf again in The Last Buccaneer, writing about Robert Louis Stevenson, who is still alive at the time of the primary action, though only just so. The author of The Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is in ill health, living on the Samoan island of Upolu, where the climate might be kinder to his suffering lungs and the native population cherish him, calling him Tusitala, Teller of Tales. Stevenson is rumored to be working on a major novel, which has prompted the interest of the Buccaneers. Pearl is not the first to use this word play, but employs it, as he did briefly in The Last Dickens, to refer to literary thieves who exploit the lack of international copyright agreements in pre-20th century publishing. Read more at MatthewPearl.com. Another word-by-word guest with an entertaining and also informative blog is Joan Price. We had a conversation with Sebastopol's world-renowned advocate for Aegis Sexuality, on the Valentine's Day show in 2011. At that time, she had written her spicy memoir, Better Than I Ever Expected, Straight Talk About Sex After 60. It's an upbeat, candid, woman-to-woman exploration of experiences and attitudes about sexuality. But as this excerpt from the show reveals, Joan was finishing up a new book. After publication of that book, I did a lot of public speaking Mm -hmm. and um, was in touch with many audiences and got a lot of emails, too. And people kept coming to me and saying, well, isn't that delightful that your sex life is so wonderful? Mine isn't, and here's why. And so I started collecting these stories, and I realized that the follow-up book had to be 
uh, how to improve your senior sex life if it isn't better than you ever expected. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this is. I've interviewed about 100 people who have candidly shared their stories and their problems and their questions. And I have a couple of dozen experts who are addressing the topics that come up. So this is going to be story, problem, solution kind of format. And it is fascinating to write, and I learned so much in doing it. Uh, many of the topics are originated on my blog where people would write in with a question and we'd discuss it. And then I realized, wait a minute, we need to go a little further with that, and it's let's put it in the book. So I'm uh, very excited about this book. Joan Price was right to be excited. Her Naked at Our Age talking out loud about senior sex became an international bestseller and won many awards, including the Outstanding Self-Help Book of 2012 accolade from the American Society of Journalists and Authors and the 2012 Book Award from the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Joan's informative blog is at joanprice.com. When Chinese-born writer Yi Yun Li was on Word by Word talking about her first novel, The Vagrants, I asked a question which led the conversation in a fascinating direction. So do you believe in fate? Preordained fate? That's a very good question. This is you personally. You're talking about me personally. Yes. Yes, I think I probably, I would say I'd rather have a fatalistic view of the world. And yes, maybe. (laughs) That's a very harsh question. Well, not harsh. I think it's very hard to answer. (laughs) I was hoping it would be a little bit. Yeah. Because what comes across in your book is that it's almost as though things. There's a Chinese mentality that comes across. At least, see if I'm right on this. Mm -hmm. Where you're not in control of what's going to happen to you. You can do things you think are right at the time and make decisions. But there's something, some machination. It may be the state. It may be the the weather. It may be you know somebody pulling strings up in the sky. Right. Whatever it is, your fate is not your own to decide. I agree. That's very much true. That's that's also very much what I I guess what I believe about life is mm-hmm. you know you can do as much as you can. <laughs> but a certain amount of it is luck. That's right. That's right. And one of the lucky things you did was take a. Continuing education class in, in creative writing. writing. Yes. So tell us how that happened, and and uh, because you wanted <laughs> to learn to speak. Obviously, you've done extremely well oh, with you. this, and and you created a new career because uh, I'm, you would not know it from reading, you know, your work that that you were a biologist and a an expert in immunology you know, <laughs> as a as background. And you know, I'm I'm did my training in psychology, and you know, have my degrees there. But yeah. uh, the same way is that. I guess what what I would call hard science somehow or other keeps you – it's not a literary mm-hmm. accomplishment. So where did this come from? Where did it – I you know, I wish I could tell you better, but I did not know. I just – I did not know why I thought of taking up the writing class because I'd never written a word before really? that. Never. Not no. – I knew you had it in no, English. Not, I, I not in English, not in Chinese either. Really? No, I just – I think something just went. <laughs> wow! I'm so glad you did. It was it was a flake. You know? <laughs> I I feel like basket weaving one hundred and one. No, I'll take this class. Yes, <laughs> right. But I what I, what I did was when I took the class, I just fell in love with storytelling. I mm-hmm. fell in love with writing. I mm-hmm. just all of a sudden I could not live without writing. <laughs> That was very interesting to me. Yes. Yes. So did writing in English, it must have been a challenge to start. 
it was a challenge. You know, even is it still? It is still in the way that, first of all, you know, I did not grow up with the language, so my intimacy with the language would never be as. But you were taught this in school, English. In in, in school, but yes. not. It's different than when you grew up with a language you speak sure. from, from day to sure. day. So, so I guess there's that intimacy. You dream in issue. Chinese. I, you know, I do dream in English. Oh, interesting. I do, I do dream in English sometimes. I mean, I do both. I, I'm, I have bilingual dreams. Yeah, how oh, fun! But I do, I process everyday life in in Chinese. So if I'm thinking I need to go get gas, I probably think in Chinese, or I need to do grocery. But, so when you're, how but, old are your kids now? Seven and three, uh, seven, seven and four. Seven and four. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking with them about. You know what they're going to do for the day. Oh, I talk in English. Yeah, Horrible. but I meant no. I meant, yeah. but do you process that in oh, still? No, then no. I don't. Yeah, I think only with with my husband because he's a Chinese. My husband is Chinese, so so we talk in Chinese. Right. Yes, but when I think about writing or stories, storytelling, it's all in English. So and which is fun. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, you've done it again. I'm. You know, I, it's one of those things. One of the, what you have to do on this side of the microphone is not gush when you discover something. <laughs> but I, I think we have discovered a fabulous uh, talent. And one of the things that I, I found so, I don't know, Kafkaesque, I guess, mm-hmm. to think about this, is that after you had been in this country and you'd won all these awards and you'd, you know, gotten married to your, you know, the boyfriend from college and he'd come over and, mm-hmm. you know, you were setting up a family and et cetera, et cetera, you applied for immigration sta- immigrant status. To get uh, as a, um, a an artist, right? An extraordinary artist. Extraordinary yeah. artist, and they looked at all your work and looked, and you got all these wonderful things from uh, your professors at, yeah. you know, the Iowa School and uh, yeah. the New Yorker magazine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, "Oh, that's nice, but so what?" <laughs> Denied. Yeah. Right. And this was. 2005? 2005 and 2006. And we got right. denied twice because okay. the appeal was denied too. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Okay. Yeah. So then what happened? And well, did, did you feel like you were part of, you know, back in your Chinese fate again? <laughs> being ground up by some system? I, again, I hope you did. <laughs> you're, you know, when you are dealing with a, with, with a bureaucracy, it's, it's like you're dealing with machines instead of human beings, right. which is frustrating in a way. That, but also, when we're talking about Kafkaesque. I, I found it also very amusing and entertaining. The letter was sent to me in the way that the letter was written. So you got this letter and you started to laugh. Now we're not going to believe that. Uh, <laughs> no, I. <laughs> I'm I, sorry. No, you're not allowed here. Right. Like for instance, there, there, there was one rationale was at the first when we first applied. I had all my professors and right. writers who knew me who wrote letters to support me. And the, let, uh, the letter from the immigration service said, you know, these people were your acquaintances and friends, so we cannot trust them. Mm-hmm. We need someone who doesn't know you but who supports your They art. can't trust them. The these, were, these were name, or, yeah. you know, brand, if you will. I mean, yes. Like professionals, yeah. Prize winner. But this, I, I just loved that, the acquaintances and friends. <laughs> so, of course, I went to these people who did not you know You didn't me. know you. Right. Yeah. Right. And then so – but the, the end of the story is – the, the end of the story is that the case was solved. Uh, 2007, I got my residency. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to become yeah. a citizen of this country? Well, that decision will have to be made in 2012. Oh, you hopefully. give a certain timeline yeah, to Yeah, five working? years. Yeah. Yes, yes. So hopefully by then. 
As an update to this conversation, Yi Yin Lee was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2010, published her novel Gold Boy, Emerald Girl the same year, and Kinder Than Solitude in 2014. She is now a professor of English at UC Davis and was sworn in as a U.S. citizen in August 2012. You have been listening to Newsworthy What Are They Up To Now version of word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media KRCB-FM as we reprise conversations with guests who are in the news. Late breaking news stories include the just-released movie starring Billy Crudup playing Stanford psychologist Philip Zimbardo and new books and honors for the word-by-word guests Adam Johnson, Steve Hawkinsmith, Amanda McTeague, Matthew Pearl, Joan Price, and Yi and Lee. Our studio engineer for today's broadcast is Jesse Fankushin, our KRCB station manager is Sean Knight, and our radio assistant is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune into the next word-by-word conversation with the writers at 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon, September 13th. Until then, here are some words I borrowed from Amanda McTeague. Thanks for traveling with me, even when as the ride takes unexpected turns.